you turn with me to Psalm 22, found on 457 in the Pew Bible. Psalm 22. Trying to face head-on in this series on lament, which is probably the most unusual series you've ever heard at Christmas time. But we purposely do this because we know that people have as much pain and sometimes much more pain during Christmas as any other time. How do you play like everything's all right? How do you celebrate the birth of this one and enter into the joy of it and yet honestly face the difficulty and suffering of life? We think that this is the best time, really, in a way, to talk about lament because we're dealing with the answer to lament, the one who came to ultimately deliver us from lament. And in fact, we're beginning to participate in that deliverance, which one day will be complete. So, never a better time than to talk about lament. So, Psalm 22. This uh, psalm is so closely associated with Christ because of the beginning cry which Christ employed himself on the cross. And sometimes the tendency is to view the whole of the psalm as just Christ this, Christ that, Christ another thing. And yet, this was written a long time before Christ by a sufferer. And actually, it sets a paradigm, it sets a a model of how we face alienation, a model of response to abandonment and alienation and divine delay that others walked in, that the whole congregation of Israel walked in and participated in this response to abandonment. And so in that long tradition of responding to alienation, Jesus entered into it, especially as the one who represented the people of God. And so we'll look at this fascinating thing that Lament is taken up by Christ himself, and lament is bound up in our very salvation. That's how critical it is, and perhaps one of the reasons that it's the most common of the Psalms is the, are the Psalms of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. 
Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless us and pour out your grace upon us that Lord, we would embrace you, that we would depend upon you as our great God in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of great suffering, prolonged suffering, ongoing suffering, suffering that seems like it's going to completely engulf us and destroy us. Lord, suffering that tempts us, that makes us feel like you yourself have abandoned us. Oh Lord, enable us to have a shield in those times, to defend ourselves against our enemy who would tear us apart, tear us from God, and Lord, destroy our faith if he could. We pray that you would enable us to prove faithful, to enter into your joy, to enter into the very deliverance of Christ to enter into uh, the Christmas celebration, even in the midst of suffering. For you have delivered us, and you surely will deliver us, as you will deliver the whole earth. Oh, Lord, bless us, bless us, uh, that we may believe in you in the midst of hardship. This we pray for your glory and honor. Amen. 
The psalm divides uh, pretty simply. I think you can see that up until verse 21, uh, we have this description of suffering. And then in 22, there's this tremendous turn. Some have even thought the two different psalms that have been pieced together because the second part is so different than the first. But they're to be taken together, obviously, as the description of affliction and deliverance. This sense of suffering, this horrible suffering, has as its danger, and the worst part of it, the sense of being alienated from God. When we suffer hardship, when we suffer deprivation, and it continues, and it continues, and it continues, then we're faced with the reality of God. We're faced with whether He's really there or not. We're challenged to the bottom of our being as to whether God even notices us and cares for us. It could be the darkness of personal depression that suffered over years and at times seems to paralyze us so that we can do nothing and we cry out and again and again and again, deliver me from this and it, it just doesn't happen. Why wouldn't he do that? Why wouldn't he fix this? Why wouldn't he help me so that I can do better with other people, so that I can be better with my responsibilities? Why? Why don't you hear me? It could be financial difficulty, loss of a job, continued uh, lack of a job that meets my needs, the, the sense of worthlessness that I feel because I don't have work, and it continues why won't you give me a job? Why? Why would you do this to our family? Why would we be almost breaking down as a family financially? Why would you do this? Why wouldn't you come to my aid? There's that sense of alienation. It could be estrangement from your family and the very ones that are supposed to support you and love you and yet you're estranged from a brother, or sister, or mother, or father, or children. You don't understand why your children haven't believed. You've prayed. You've agonized over it. Maybe you have adult children that don't believe. And, and the question is, why? I, I, I prayed for them. I taught them. I did all of these things. Why? It could be the estrangement of divorce itself. And the loneliness of it. And the fact that it's continued for years. And it could be profound loneliness and exclusion. Uh, not having close friendships. Even in the midst of a church in which you're supposed to have friendships. And yet you continue not to have those. Why would God do that to you? Why wouldn't he give you the friends that you feel like you need so badly? It could be... Profound suffering and loneliness within a marriage. <laughs> a lot of that. Being neglected. Living with someone governed by pride and a hardened heart. No communication. It could be physical pain that just assaults you day in and day out. And it just won't quit. And he won't deliver you from it. It could be barrenness. It could be struggling with ongoing disease. And as the psalmist speaks of here, it's, it's 
intensified by the fact that he's attacked by his enemy, scorned and mocked in his suffering. The sarcasm of verses 7 and 8, you know, making mouths, wagging their heads. Oh, you know, it's that kind of, oh, yeah. Just kicking him while he's down. He's suffering and they're throwing on top of that. It's obvious that God has abandoned you. Your trust in God is a joke. He has no regard for you. Can't you see that? He doesn't... uh, Come, he doesn't care, he has no concern. You're out of your mind, you're seeing things if you think that God is concerned about you. It's all in your head. You're like a woman that's been abandoned for three years and every day she expects him to come back. And you won't even go out with anyone else. And you're saying to her, he's not coming back. And that's what they're saying to him. He's not coming back. He's not there. And though we may not have these physical enemies, we've got the enemy of our soul who invades and attacks and accuses. And he has also the the tool of our own sinfulness always to bring to bear. Do you think he forgives you? Do you think, why wouldn't he abandon? Look at all that you've done. Look what a failure you are. What a Christian you are. This just makes sense that he would turn his back on you. We so often have this sense in our struggle that God's way over there and he's just sitting there just waiting, rolling his eyes again and again, shaking his head, waiting for us to get to him and we just never will get there. That's the way we feel. Feel the opposite of God coming over, embracing us and holding us and taking us wherever we are and being with us in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of struggling with sin and brokenness. So there's this terrible alienation of being forsaken by God. And the enemy, whether it's physical or uh, it's spiritual, and certainly, as Paul says, our real enemy now is, is spiritual, spiritual forces uh, in high places, dark forces that are out to destroy us. And in a sense, so that would be our bulls, I think, in the main. Although many in the world, many believers in the world suffer the physical manifestation of satanic opposition. Um, but they're described as wild animals, right, to, to, to convey the viciousness of it, of bulls and lions and dogs. And then it's repeated later in the opposite order. Uh, to kind of an enclosure of this being subject to the viciousness and destruction of these people. The viciousness and destruction of satanic attack. And we must never lessen that. We must never play like we're not at war. We're ridiculous if we do. And even, he says in verse 15, you lay me in the dust of death. He recognizes ultimately that it's God's providence that does this. It's God ultimately in control of all things that has allowed this to happen. You are the one that has put me here in the midst of it. And so there's this cry, this cry to deliver me, to uh, come to me. And here's... the. There's the description of this pain, but I I want to focus on the two primary things that were given in this passage uh, for our own comfort, for our own uh, uh, model, 
Because it's a model of how do you deal with alienation? How do you deal with this kind of suffering and a sense of abandonment? Uh, it's a model that Jesus entered into himself. And so he set the pace for us as well. And the first thing is remembrance. Okay? And the second thing, as we'll see, is a look to the deliverance of God. A remembrance of his past deliverances and then the memory of his present and future deliverance. But you see, the structure of it helps a lot. In these first 11 verses, uh, if you'll look at them with me, uh, let's, let's call it a ham sandwich, okay? And uh, the ham is in the middle. That's verses 6 through 8. That's a description of my condition, okay? That's the centerpiece of it. Just as in the second section that starts with verse 12, it's the first thing and it's the long thing, his condition. And it ends, that section ends with a cry. But this one, it's structured so that the condition is put in the middle. And on each side of the ham is cheese, all right? So the cheese on both sides is a remembrance of who God is. You see in verses 3 through 5, he speaks of God being the faithful God to Israel. And in verses uh, 9 and 10, he speaks of God being faithful to him personally. So in the middle is my condition. On the outside, the cheese is God's faithfulness, remembering who he is and what he has done for Israel and what he has done for me. And on the outside, the bread is the cry. He begins with the cry in this section And he ends with the cry. But I want you to think of it this way. You start with the condition and you move out remembering who he is and therefore crying. Okay? That's the way it works. Remembering who he is and what he has done, I cry out to you with still expectation. Crying out in agony, yes. But for that reason... I can cry out in agony. And for that reason, I can say, my God, my God. Three times he says, my God. So there is this expression of faith. Calvin talks about this in a way of saying, he puts this faith first so it guards him. You know, He guards him from overstepping his boundaries, so to speak. You are my God. You belong to me. You are committed to me. That's what my God means. You said that you're my God. (laughs) You're the one that came to me and said, I'm your God. And so I say to you, my God, that I belong to. So the condition is serious. The condition is debilitating. He doesn't lessen the seriousness of his condition. He cries out in agony, both in verses 6 through 8 and then in that extended period, uh, uh, section 12 through 18, which some say there's nothing like it in the Psalms, hardly anything like it in the Old Testament in terms of expressing uh, suffering. But he remembers who God is. And... Many things we could say, but I want to focus on verse 3. He says, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And three times, this is an answer, kind of a, a parallel to his saying, my God. Three times he says, they trusted, they trusted, they trusted. They regarded you as their God, and they trusted you. And he's, he's using this, you see, to encourage himself to trust as they trusted. 
and to call out my God. So you have to, even though it starts with my God, you kind of have to jump in and go to verses 6 through 8 and work backwards. And, and then 6 and 8 move forward to the other cry, be not far from me. Because you've been my God from my, from, from my mother's womb. You've always been my God, so why would you be far from me? So there's this added agony of saying, you've been faithful to Israel and faithful to me. How could it be that you're not faithful to me? And yet that's also the reason I can say, and so I expect that you will, Lord. I can't understand why you're not, but you're still my God. I'm still depending upon you. I'm still waiting on you. I have nowhere else to go. You are my God. But when he says you are holy... Uh, holy is not, does not mean lifted up. In this case, it's not talking about how God is lifted up and separate and distant from us. But you are holy means that you are like you always have been. And holiness so often is associated with deliverer. You're the deliverer, the holy one of Israel, as he's called so many times in Israel in context of his mighty power to deliver and save his people. And this next phrase is so important because it says you're enthroned on the praises of Israel. In other words, you so do good to your people so constantly and they in return praise you. That's where you like to dwell forever in those praises. Creating those praises in your people's lives because of your faithfulness to them and your goodness to them and your favor to them. So that they are ever giving you praises, that's what your enthronement is. Isn't that glorious that he will enthrone himself forever? And that's how he enthrones himself, on your praises. That's how faithful he will be to bring about your deliverance, to be good to you, to show his favor to you and enrich you because he dwells in the praises of his people. And so he encourages himself that he himself will enter into those praises. And of course, by the end of this psalm, he has gloriously, not only has he entered into his praises, but his con- the congregation has entered into his praises, the afflicted have entered into his praises, and the whole earth has entered into his praises to demonstrate that he is enthroned not only in the praises of Israel, but ultimately he's enthroned in the praises of the whole earth. That's the way God is going to bless the earth in his goodness. You see, we have all the more a remembrance, don't we? This, his remembrance is of what God has done in Israel. Our remembrance, when we feel forsaken, is what he has done in Christ Jesus. Our remembrance is what he has done in Christ Jesus he has entered into the lament himself. Uh, he has entered into the very suffering of this world himself so that he has entered into the cry of lament. He has not abandoned us to that, but has taken it up to express the very pain and very suffering and very abandonment that he endured for our sake. And here is a strange thing because uh, when he entered into this lament, it was not 
It was all for us. It was all for our sake. He shows that it's okay to cry out, why have you forsaken me? If the perfect man, Christ Jesus, can cry this out, if he can enter into this tradition of lament, then it certainly tells us that uh, we can as well. Uh, But he came in order to completely overwhelm and engulf this lament with his salvation. And so we look back to one who has suffered as we suffer. We look back to, to God entering into this world in the flesh, bearing our wrath. And his cry was also the cry for our salvation. That's what's so amazing is that our lament now As we cry out, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? We look at the one who was purposely abandoned for us in order that we can be sure that God would never abandon us. This is is a, a new life that we live that they simply didn't live then because God had not come in the flesh. To know that God has come and he cried out this lament, why have you forsaken me? Because he was truly being abandoned by the Father. He was brought before the judgment seat of of God. And he suffered that sense of horrible, horrible wrath and abandonment on the cross because he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so it gives us this incredible assurance that God not only has not abandoned me, but he abandoned his son so that he, I could know he would never abandon me. That all abandoning, which really is a, is a sense that I'm under God's wrath. You see, I'm under God's rejection. I'm under God's frown. God has turned his back on me. He doesn't regard me anymore. Brothers and sisters, All of that has been borne by Christ. It's been taken away. In his lament, you and I can know, even as we cry out in our pain, you cannot abandon me because you abandoned your son for me. Do you think he's going to abandon his son and abandon you? when he abandoned his son, would go through that horrible pain and his son would cry out in that horrible way so that you would never be abandoned, so that you would never suffer that wrath. He bore it in his body on the cross to bear it away from you, to deflect it from you, so that Paul can say, there is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because of this cry, he has borne away our suffering. He's borne away any thought that we could be rejected. Now, we may struggle with it. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that we won't suffer this sense of alienation. But I'm saying we have this anchor, as, as the writer of Hebrews says, that's behind the veil, that's in there intimately with God. We've been brought into the intimate presence of God who no human being had known before the time of Christ. And we've been brought in there with Christ in union with Him in full assurance that we belong to God. 
That's the context in which we get to cry out our lament. It's in the context of a lament that's already been cried out by the Son of God Himself. And so this helps to explain also why out of seemingly nowhere in this passage, and it's, it's kind of hard to tell if the writer has this future sense of what will be done for him. And there's some sense of this in verse 22 that it just breaks in upon him that though my condition has not changed, I know there will be ultimate deliverance for me. That's an important aspect of this because we might suffer and many believers have suffered and even died and things didn't get better. Just like the writer of Hebrews says, the uh, Abraham and them did not really ever have the land, but they were looking to that land that is not uh, of this world, the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. And so for us in the same way, this it breaks in. In fact, it, it seems to break in even as he's saying, save me from the li- mouth of the lion in verse 21. And then suddenly, you've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's almost that he, he's invaded with God's salvation right as he cries out. You know, just suddenly enters into his heart. And so some of this has that aspect of I will praise you. I will gather up your people to praise you. And... Everybody will enter into this praise even though the ultimate situation has not changed, but it will ultimately change. So there's that aspect of it. But there's also this sense of the real deliverance that he has enjoyed. And so this verse 22 and following may actually be written at a time when he did enter into that deliverance. So he's describing both of his experiences, but wedding them together to say this is a whole. This is the whole of what happens in lamentation and deliverance. But I want this is what's so important about this. In verse 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And the writer in Hebrews chapter 2 quotes this and applies it. Uh, to Jesus Christ himself. We, uh, and in that, he says, um, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Um, now, this is what's so glorious, is that Christ in his person enters into the lament and ultimately swallows up that lament in his death and is resurrected into the beginning of the end of the lament, the new life, the new creation. See, all of history basically is, from the time of Adam's sin, it really is defined by lament. That's why lament is so important. The, the agony of the world that is in sin and against God. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8 that the whole of creation groans. He said, we all groan. The whole earth is groaning. Every being in the earth, everything in the earth, basically, Paul says, is groaning, awaiting this final deliverance. 
And Jesus himself enters into this groaning. He enters into this lament and swallows it up and brings forth a praise that not only goes out to all the people of God, but it streams out to the whole of the earth. And then he, in this new situation of having swallowed up the lament for his people, now is with his people in the congregation that he is newly formed as a result of this deliverance. So we are with him among the delivered in the congregation, praising God with him for his and our deliverance. And we have to see that not only did Jesus bear the wrath of God, but he was the one who cried out because of the evil done against him. And God delivered him from those evil ones and he raised him up and now he rules as the one who has suffered and all evil ones and evil against him will ultimately be brought to nothing. And he will ultimately deliver us from both physical and spiritual evil. That's the beginning of our deliverance is his own deliverance from those evil forces on the cross. And that's why this immense joy breaks out in the last part of this psalm. And he is in the midst of us as the one who has brought us out of lament into praise. And of course, that's a constant process in our life. And it won't be completely fulfilled until the day he comes again. And all lament will be gone. That's what it means when it says in Revelation, he will wipe away every tear. This whole history of lament will be gone. There will be no more tears. Lament is swallowed up in the very suffering of Christ. And so this deliverance is our ultimate deliverance from sin. It's an ultimate deliverance from our brokenness and our fear and our failures. Anything that plagues us. And here's the most amazing thing is that Jesus here was suffering because of his enemies. And here's this added part of it. We are those enemies. We are the ones who put him to death. We are the ones to whom he said, forgive them. And this one is vindicated against his enemies. But then amazingly, he catches up those enemies and saves them and rescues them. Because it says, he died for us while we were yet his enemies, Paul says. We are justified as the ungodly. We inflicted his suffering. Others inflicted his suffering actually there. And yet... They were the very ones pardoned. We look at him and we think he's abandoned by God. They're they're mocking him, mocking him, saying, he's abandoned you. Look at it. it, There's no way that he could be for you. He was, this is an interesting thing, he was abandoned, but not why you thought he was abandoned. He was abandoned, but not because of what you thought. And here I want to quote Isaiah 53. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, 
That's what it looked like. You're obviously abandoned and afflicted by God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. The irony of us wagging our heads and mocking him and thinking he's abandoned by God and he was being abandoned so that we could be saved. That's how much he loves us. And that's why when the this one who was delivered and he offered up the uh, fellowship meal and he invited others to participate... It was in this very passage, in, the, in this fellowship meal, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus having suffered for us, suffered for us his enemies who mocked him and ridiculed him. And now he invites us to come and feed at the fellowship meal. Come and sit down at table and eat my body and my blood and be forgiven and be accepted. And enter into what is the beginning of the end of the lament that has caused your suffering. Here, the beginning of the ending of the groaning of this world through my sacrifice, my blood. And brothers and sisters, this is Christmas. This is the celebration of the birth of this one who came to end the lament of the world through his own suffering. The lament even of his enemies. You'd think he would just sit there and laugh at his enemies who are suffering, but he suffers for them and delivers them from their sin. Oh, praise the name of this Savior. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, may we, in our suffering, remember what you have done through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be defended against a sense of alienation because you could never abandon us because you were alienated for us. And Lord Jesus, you're bringing this salvation to the whole world. It, it is a, such a powerful word that we bring to the world that God has suffered for you. This is the God that is. Not a God who turns his back. Not a God who is distant. But a God who suffers and dies. A God who enters into our suffering and lament. And he breaks it. And he engulfs it with hope and joy and forgiveness. This is a message to all the nations. A message that will go from one generation to another of your praises Indeed, Lord, you are enthroned on our praises, the praises of those who've been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, may this constantly defend us in the worst of our suffering from a sense of being abandoned by you. But may we look all the more that even this psalmist couldn't see at the time, but now we can because you have come, that you're not the one who abandons his people. You're the one who dies for his people. And you will never abandon us, ever. Because you have taken up our flesh and suffered for us. Bless us, Lord, with comfort in this season. Whatever we are suffering, for your name's sake, amen.